Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Hello, everyone. Today we are joined by Charlie Crawford of the Georgia Battlefields Association. Charlie grew up near Philadelphia and has a BA in Applied Mathematics from Georgia Tech. He spent 24 years in the Air Force and then went on to get his master's degree in systems management from the University of Southern California. In addition to this, Charlie has given over 100 presentations and led over 50 tours relating to battlefield preservation. He's also been a member of the American Battlefield Trust and its predecessor organization since 1991. Since 2000, he's been a member of the Atlantic Civil War Roundtable and was the group's trivia master from 2008 to 2022. He also, in 2000, became a trustee of the Georgia Battlefields Association. He's been the organization's newsletter editor since 2001 and served as the president from 2002 to 2021. These are just some of Charlie's long, long list of credentials. Today we sit down to discuss the war in Georgia and battlefield preservation and the work that the Georgia Battlefields Association is doing. I hope you enjoy this discussion and learn something. All right, so today we are joined by Charlie Crawford of the Georgia Battlefields Association. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. How are you today? Um, I'm fine, Andy. Thanks. Yeah, I'm glad you can join us. Um, talk a bit about the Georgia Battlefields Association, what you guys do, uh, and the war in Georgia. Uh, but first, I want my listeners to get to know you a little bit. Um, so tell us a bit about yourself. Um, what you do with the Georgia Battlefields Association. Uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia, grew up there, went to Georgia Tech, which is here in Atlanta, uh, spent 24 years in the Air Force, and then <clears throat> I taught uni- at University of Nebraska for a year, and my wife and I moved here in 1996, and we've been here since. I say here, uh, I'm in Atlanta now. Um and I had gotten interested in battlefield preservation many, many decades ago, actually, mm-hmm. when I was stationed in the Pentagon in the late 1980s. Uh, there was the big uh, brouhaha about a developer named Till Hazel developing land adjacent to the second Manassas battlefield. Mm-hmm. And as with most national parks, when it was originally established, it did not include all the significant area of the battle because there was always a limit on how much the Congress was willing to spend on buying a national park. And so the uh, one of the things that was within Till Hazel's development area was the site of Robert E. Lee's headquarters. Mm. And that became quite a thing. Uh, I'm sure it's before your time, but this is the late 1980s. And eventually Congress uh, was persuaded by public pressure into buying uh, the land that Hazel had started to develop. But they also said, in essence, we're not going to go through this again. We want some sort of roadmap, uh, guideline, template on how to designate uh, potential battlefields that have not yet been saved, uh, either by the national park system or a state park system. And that's when the Civil War Sites Advisory Commission was formed in the early 90s. And they put out a report in 1993 called the Civil War Sites Advisory Commission Report, logically enough. And now that is the 
guideline for preservation efforts. There was no presumption that they were going to cover every significant historical site uh, relevant to the Civil War or related to the Civil War. But nonetheless, when they allocate federal money to participate in any sort of battlefield acquisition, you have to tie the site that is to be acquired to one of those uh, sites that was uh, identified in the 1993 report. So anytime you do battlefield preservation or acquisition, invariably the term CSAC or CWSAC, Civil War Sites Advisory Commission report, <laughs> and the year 1993 is going to show up in the paperwork. Uh, so I, when I moved to Georgia, I was already involved with what at that time was called the Association for Preservation of Civil War Sites, which had been formed in the wake of the Till Hazel thing by a bunch of National Park Service guys. Um, and for, for names might be familiar with some of you, Will Green, Bob Crick, uh, Don Fons, Dennis Fry, uh, Gary Gallagher. And they this said, we need to have a private organization that will save battlefield sites because the government is not always that quick to act on these things. And so they, it's when they formed APCWS, which without taking up the whole rest of your time with the history of the National Battlefield Organization. It's now called the American Battlefield Trust after uh, a couple of mergers and a couple of name changes. And it still exists uh, today as the National Preservation Organization. When I was moving to Georgia uh, in 1996, I called the then uh, president of the Association for Preservation of Civil War Sites, who I already knew by that time, and said, who do I want to talk to in Georgia when I get here? Excuse me. And he put me on to Ollie Keller. So when I got to Atlanta, I talked with Ollie Keller. And by 2001, I was president of Georgia Battlefields Association and was for 20 years, roughly. Um, and I gave up that post in the uh, spring of 2021 for a couple of different reasons, not all of which are relevant to your audience. but in part because it's good to be the institutional memory and to have some experience, but it's also not good to not have fresh blood and new ideas, especially in the leadership role. So now I'm what's called president emeritus. Uh, I'm still very active as a trustee, uh, but we have good new leaders coming on. And Georgia Battlefields Association in a nutshell, tries to preserve sites that are typically under development threat. One of the things that the Civil War Sites Advisory Commission report did was they characterized battlefields as uh, significant, uh, uh, decisive, um, minor. I mean, it's sort of on a spectrum of Gettysburg, most people would recognize as significant. Um, the first national battlefield park was actually Chickamauga which was also characterized as decisive, uh, which means it determined the outcome of the campaign. Then they also categorized them as, is there any uh, remnant of them that still were saving? Well, if they were already in the national park system, they were categorized in you know category one, meaning they're significant and preserved. But there's a lot of sites that are still in private hands 
and unfortunately, most of them are fragmented. For example, around Atlanta, we have what's called the river line, which was seven miles long, uh, which is a defensive position, Confederate defensive position along the Chattahoochee River. And now it exists in about 12 segments, none of which is more than a couple hundred yards long. So that's the kind of thing that we tried to help a local battlefield organization. Typically, uh, it'll have a name like Friends of Resaca or Friends of Chickamauga, that kind of thing. Uh, we want them to be in the lead because they're local to the site. They know better than we do, since I can't travel the whole state all every day, um, what the individual aspects and unique characteristics are of any given site. And we want them to be the lead and we will help them however we can. And sometimes it means relating the experiences we've had before in preservation efforts. Sometimes it means giving them some money. Sometimes it means appearing before a county commission hearing as support for what they want to do as far as preservation goes. Um, and so that's, I think original question was a little bit about me. I guess I got way downstream <laughs> on you there, but no, that's, that's, okay. that's about where we are today. Yeah, we're going to get there, too. So ha have you always been fascinated in the Civil War? You, it sounds like you're a Yankee who went south and took over. Um, so. Well, if you remember, it, I was born in 1949. And in the 1960s, early 1960s, was the centennial of the Civil War. And back then, newspapers didn't tend to have color photographs or color inserts. But they, the Philadelphia Inquirer had in the Sunday paper, which was normally you know the thicker paper, where they would spend a little extra money, they had a series of inserts about the centennial. And even prior to that, in 1956, the movie, The Great Locomotive Chase came out, uh, the Disney movie, which had, of course, Fess Parker, who was famous already at that point as for portraying Davy Crockett in the Disney series. Um, and the, all those things, I always liked history when I was a kid growing up in Philadelphia, I don't know how many school trips we took to Independence Hall and Valley Forge. And we were only two, three hour drive from Gettysburg and my older brother went to Gettysburg College. So when my parents would go to visit him, I would you know, roam the battlefield. So I couldn't tell you how many times I've been to Gettysburg. So I always liked history. Fortunately, I was also good at mathematics. And for anybody that's pursuing a history degree, you will soon find out that there's an awful lot of people with history degrees and no place to put them because <laughs> there's only X number of history teachers or and public historians, as they call them, are even more rare. Like being a historian for the National Park Service is a very rare commodity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, we made the decision that I would go to an engineering school, which I did. And so my all my work experiences in mathematics and computers and that kind of thing, except for the fact that I was an intelligence officer for 24 years in the Air Force. So, um, I, but the mathematic and scientific, mathematical and scientific training stood me well uh, to be a military analyst. And um, I always liked history, but it was quite apparent to me, this is even back in the mid 1960s, that you stood a lot better chance of getting gainful employment if you had a science or engineering degree than if you had a history degree. And so that's why I did that. But that what that did is it made me 
like I read history books for fun as opposed to it being work. Uh, my wife is a, uh, has a PhD in statistics and she reads, uh, I would call it trashy fiction. She reads mystery novels <laughs> for fun. Um, so it's just, it, it makes history fun for me because it's not something I have to do. It's something I like to do. Right. Well, so that's, that's what got you interested. Do you have a specific aspect of the war you like to study or do you just study it as a whole? Pretty much as a whole. Uh, growing up in Pennsylvania, I was a lot more, well, and I was stationed in Virginia twice when I was in the Air Force. So I can't say I've been to every battlefield in Virginia. Nobody can make that claim. Uh, because if, if you are if you delve down to where every time Jeb Stewart had a cavalry fight with some other, you know, U.S. cavalry unit, uh, there's no way you can possibly cover all those. Uh, so, but I, you know, I've been to Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania, uh, Chancellorsville, uh, Suffolk, uh, Portsmouth, Norfolk, uh, Yorktown, uh, Manassas. I'm, I mean, I've I've run the gamut, done the stuff in the Shenandoah Valley. So that I knew that better than I did the uh, Western theater. But of course, I'd been here for four years going to college. And so I knew the Atlanta campaign somewhat, but I've gotten a lot more familiar with it. Uh, since I got here, I'll, I'll read, I don't want to say any Civil War book, but I, I have a rather eclectic collection of Civil War books. And we have a house in New Mexico now. And I suspect most of your audience won't know that there was a Confederate campaign in New Mexico in the spring of 1862, uh, which resulted in the Battle of Glorietta Pass. And that was it's a small fight compared to almost any other battle you might have heard of, but it was decisive mm -hmm. in the sense that when the Confederates uh, were defeated, actually they weren't defeated at Glorietta Pass, but during the Battle of Glorietta Pass, a U.S. cavalry unit got behind them and destroyed all their wagons and at uh, uh, Apache Canyon. And at that point, the Confederates had won a tactical victory over the U.S. forces in in Glorietta, but had absolutely no way of supplying themselves. <laughs> and so they had to retreat. They retreated all the way back to Texas and thus ended the Confederate dream of a Southwestern empire that had gold and silver and a lot of other precious metals that would have uh, helped them a bit. So I, like I say, I, I'll focus on a lot of things. Being president of Georgia Battlefields Association, I had to know the Georgia campaigns well, and I do through a you know, study over the years. Uh, I just finished an eight lecture series on the Atlanta campaign for a, uh, uh, a group in the, the area. And um, there was, of course, the Chickamauga campaign occurs in Georgia, the Atlanta campaign, the March to the Sea. Uh, people, most people might be unaware that Jefferson Davis was actually captured in Georgia. And it was, so there's spots where he, stopped on his attempt to flee U.S. control. Um, Wilson's raid, uh, relatively unknown, went from northeastern Mississippi across Alabama and into Georgia. And it was actually his units that captured Javis at the end of the war. We have uh, the Fort, uh, it's not called the Fort Pulaski campaign, but Fort Pulaski is a, was a significant uh, fort uh, down on the Savannah or the Georgia coast that controls access to the port of Savannah. And the, early in 1862, the U.S. Army 
mounted a campaign against Fort Pulaski and forced its surrender, which essentially rendered Savannah useless as a Confederate fort for the remainder of the war. So there's that. There's Andersonville. A lot of people have heard of Andersonville. That's in Georgia. So we have a decent number of as decent, it's probably not the right adjective. We have a significant number of Civil War sites in Georgia, and I know most of them pretty well now after you know 20 years of being with Georgia Battlefields Association. Yeah, and well, and you talked a bit about what um, the GBA does earlier. So it sounds like you guys work with smaller groups and help them preserve and buy up land that's endangered. Yes, um, and our our philosophy, if it's that's the right term, is we don't care who gets the credit as long as the site gets preserved. But it would be absurd for me when the Friends of Rasaka first con- contacted us about helping them. It would be nuts for me to go in there and presume and say, okay, step aside now, all you local guys, we'll take over. That's, that's as far as I'm concerned, the wrong approach. What we say to them is, you know this site better than we do. You live here. Okay, help us understand and then help us understand what you need. And that's the role we will try to play. And because of our connection with the American Battlefield Trust, um, like say I've been a member there for 30 some years, um, we can bring the national resources to bear. And American Battlefield Trust quite often gets federal money through the American Battlefield Protection Program. And so we're quite willing to be a, what would you call a background player? I mean, sometimes the amount of money we provide is significant. In one case, it was over $100,000, but there's no money like federal money. I mean, uh, if, if there's a highway going through, if you've heard of Section 106, which is the part of federal law that requires that any federal highway uh, money must include an evaluation of the impact on cultural resources if the road is widened or if a new interstate is built or a new highway is rerouted. Uh, you have to do an assessment of whether this is going to impact, uh, they say cultural resources as a broad term. For us, of course, it's historic sites, but as an example, uh, there have been places in Georgia when they were building the interstate highway that they unearthed Native American bones. So that is an example of a cultural resource. They've also unearthed Civil War soldiers um, in the process of constructing Interstate 75. In one famous example, um, they unearthed bones uh, up near the, the Calhoun area. And there was a soldier who had been buried and his leg had been amputated, and he obviously died of shock or sepsis quite soon after the amputation, because they buried the severed leg with him. And so, of course, we found the bones, the skeleton, with a very uh, pronounced evidence of a surgical removal of the lower part of his leg, Uh, but the bones of his leg were there with him, and they even found the buckle from the tourniquet that was used to try to stanch the bleeding. Uh, at that point, this was before Section 106 uh, was uh, became law, and the the basic uh, attitude of the highway uh, developers that had discovered this was get this thing out of here; it's in the way. Uh, now there would be a prolonged pause to try and determine if others were close by. 
who it might be, which is almost impossible. But of course, most of your audience will know Civil War soldiers do not have dog tags, as we call them. Although toward the end of the war, you could actually buy from the sutler. He would make a metal identity disc for you uh, because by 1864, 1865, a lot of these people could assume they were going to be hurt or killed. And so by that point uh, of the war, three years in, uh, you could, they, they, for in some battles, soldiers would actually write on a piece of paper and pin that piece of paper inside their uniform uh, so that they could be identified. Uh, but then there are some examples of what we call identity discs, uh, which are little pieces of, of metal uh, with a name imprinted or punched into them. Uh, but it, it, those are rare when you find a grave with an identity disc in it. Uh, of course, most Civil War graves were quite purposely exhumed in 1865, 66, 67 through 68. The US government had a program to go to every place where they knew or suspected US soldiers had been buried, exhume them, and relocate them in the national cemeteries, like the one at Vicksburg, the one at Chattanooga, the one at Marietta. But they did not do that for Confederate soldiers. And so the Confederates, the Southern citizenry was left to exhume bodies to the extent they could. And one of the famous uh, Confederate cemeteries is at Resaca. The Green family, specifically Mary Green, one of the daughters, um, set about with her sisters and whatever men who were capable of having returned from the war and went around that Resaca battlefield and exhumed everybody they could find, which unfortunately quite often is because they had been partially exposed by rain because they hadn't been buried that deep or pigs or wild animals that tried to eat them. Uh, and they gathered all those bodies, identified the ones they could. And of course, there was no internet back then. They put uh, advertisements in newspapers throughout the South saying, if you lost a son, a brother, a father, a cousin, a nephew at Resaca, we have bodies. If you want to come and see if you can identify them through some piece of clothing or a memento or a Bible that they might have been carrying, uh, you're welcome to do so. But of course, most others did not have the money uh, even if they had the inclination to travel to Resaca to try and reclaim uh, their kin, uh, not knowing whether they would find them when they got there. Uh, and so the Resaca cemetery up there is uh, the bodies that the Green family collected that were not subsequently reclaimed. Wow. So you guys are doing very important work. Um, and you mentioned the Confederacy. Um, yeah, hard to talk about the Civil War without mentioning the <laughs> well, well, I was going to say that you, I mean, especially in Georgia, right? Uh, I'm in Ohio, so we we don't we don't have any battlefields up here, unfortunately. We're typically a Union. I, well, I yeah, but you, you have Johnson's Island, you have Camp Chase. So. Well, and, and we're also home of Sherman and Grant, so <laughs> right, <laughs> which and the uh, original home of Custer. No. Yeah, right. And I want to talk about Sherman and the March to the Sea, but I also wanted to ask you. You know, given today's world, uh, I noticed in your website that you guys did some discussions on Confederate monuments and stuff. How do you guys navigate those waters? Um, carefully, I guess, is the right word. Hmm. 
there is um we realize the demographics of the state and we we believe local governments have the right to determine whether they still want the monument or not uh, we don't believe in defacing monuments or blowing up monuments some monuments have been relocated and georgia is not unique in aspect kentucky has some tennessee has some that have been moved from places of prominence to places that in fact some of them were moved from you know courthouse square to a battlefield or a, a cemetery um it's a discussion that that should be had unfortunately many there was a phasing to a lot of confederate monuments right after the war what's called the ladies memorial associations or lmas uh put up monuments and typically the theme is to our confederate dead and even in those circumstances, right after the Civil War, when there was a lot of animosity about the fact that the South seceded and you know cost both the North and the South many hundreds of thousands of deaths, um, honoring the dead was pretty much allowed, regardless of whether you were North or South, uh, certainly in the North, but even in the South. And so there was several decades where monuments to the Confederate dead quite often in cemeteries that had Confederate sections. And that still, for the most part, is accepted. Mm -hmm. But as we get into the 1890s, um, and for about two or three decades thereafter, a lot of the monuments were put up in part in conjunction with Jim Crow laws. And in fact, we have a, had a monument here in Decatur, which was there from 1908 until two years ago. And the wording on it was slightly obscure, but it talked about a covenant-keeping race. And it was quite apparent they meant the white Southern race. Uh, and it also implies with that wording that no other race keeps its covenants not the white Northern race, nor the African-American race, nor the Native American race. And people were like, well, this the wording is sufficiently obscure that not everyone will draw that conclusion from seeing the words on the monument. The significant thing there was we and some others did some research about the installation of the monument. Mm. And the guy who had put up a lot of money for it also was quoted in the local newspapers as saying, we put up this monument to convince the current generation, meaning the you know, people who were 20 years old in 1908, or roughly 20 years old, to show them what their forefathers had done to maintain the superiority of the white race. Well, when you take that in conjunction with the wording on the monument, it becomes pretty obvious what the intent of the monument was. Mm -hmm. So. Um, as I say, we're not for destroying monuments. Uh, and it's like the one on the University of North Carolina campus, it was one of those things where the protesters created a diversion at another spot that diverted the local police to that spot and then pulled down that monument. And an example, I think, that shows you just how much of a frenzy that effort became. In Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin being considered pretty liberal for the most part. 
they actually tore down a statue of Colonel Hans Haig, who was a U.S. Army officer who was quite uh, the abolitionist, but they tore down his monument and threw it in the lake. Why? Well, because it had something to do with the Civil War. He wasn't a Confederate. He wasn't a racist. <laughs> and yet, the, you know, it's just one of those things where you they latch on to uh, everything Civil War related is bad. And so it has to go. Uh, we've done, I say we, in Georgia, there has been some what they call uh, contextualization of monuments, where they take a monument that might, you might question why or what it's trying to say. And they put uh, new historical markers around it to try and explain the time in which it was erected and why it says what it says. One of the, another sort of ironic example is there's a, a statue in Piedmont Park here in Atlanta called the Peace Monument. And it's a Confederate soldier uh, kneeling on the ground with a rifle in his hand and the angel of peace is standing above him with her hand on her sh on his shoulder saying the war is over, you know, the time for peace has come. Well, somehow that also became fodder for the anti-monument frenzy. I have somewhat of an advantage when I deal with local government officials. They'll say, well, this, you know, you just want to buy this land to make it into a Confederate memorial. I said, hey, I'm from Pennsylvania. My ancestors fought for the Union. I don't care a dram about the Confederacy. I just think it's important from a historical aspect that people can go, especially if it's a battlefield-related monument, and see what happened there and have some context about it. Right. Um, at Gettysburg, there's a couple of monuments that are questioned because they were put up uh, in the, the, I think it's the One's the Mississippi Monument. I think the other one's the South Carolina Monument that says something about the fact that um, these, the Confederates were fighting for their homes and their religions and their way of life or something like that, which implies that somehow slavery was integral to the purpose of the monument. And so their National Park Service and the superintendent at Gettysburg in conjunction with local government and state government officials are trying to decide exactly how to contextualize those monuments. But if a monument says this on the first day of the battle, this colonel led this regiment and fought on this spot. Well, and I purposely didn't identify whether it was a Confederate or US colonel mm -hmm. because that's, that's history. That's helping you understand what happened there. We don't see why those kind of things should be subject to the same ire. There was a there's a marker here in uh, Westview Cemetery, which is on the what was at one time the Ezra Church battlefield, and all it said was on this site, on this date, there was fighting here, uh, which later became known as the Battle of Ezra Church. Well, that was horribly defaced with words that I won't repeat here and won't repeat anywhere with obscenities of the most vulgar sort, simply because it's made reference to a Civil War site. Mm. That, that kind of stuff bothers me considerably. And when we see something like that, we'll publicize our disagreement with it. But we're not one of those that says the, they use it's a slippery slope argument that as soon as you take down a statue of a Confederate soldier, what's next? You know, this is horrible. How can you possibly, you're trying to change history? Mm -hmm. No. 
we're just trying to take a statue in front of the county courthouse, which somehow implies government sanction that, you know, the never was the nation, a nation conceived so fair and so pure, which is a recurrent theme on Confederate monuments, you know, a nation so fair and so pure. Well, if slavery is pure, then I don't understand what pure is. <laughs> right. So it's tricky waters there. And, uh, you guys have to navigate that. The, the other legacy I'm curious about is being in Georgia is the legacy of the Union. So um, obviously throughout the nation, the Confederacy has its legacy of slavery. Uh, but in the South and specifically Georgia, uh, the Union can have a negative legacy as well with William Sherman's March to the Sea. Uh, right. So what kind of legacy do you see there and how do you guys grapple with that? Uh, it's not hard to grapple, at least not for me. Um, most people are unaware Sherman in 1879, remember Sherman was commanding general of the U.S. Army from 1869 to 1883. In 1879, he made a trip to Georgia to inspect what's called Fort McPherson. Remember, I mean, when the Southern states were reintegrated into the Union, they were now part of the United States. So not just occupation troops, uh, or post-war troops were there, but now U.S. installations were back for the purpose that U.S. installations are in every state. And Sherman came on an inspection tour, and they actually held a big banquet for him in Atlanta. So in 1879, I don't want to say they'd gotten over it, but basically they recognized, you know, Sherman as a United States Army commander uh, who was a person of some significance. And when he traveled through town, they gave him a, you know, quite a dinner and a reception. Okay, by 1890 or so, and again, I think this coincides with the uprise of Jim Crow and the reinstitution uh, re of the Ku Klux Klan, which unfortunately happened in 1915 in Georgia at Stone Mountain. Um, then they taught they started to talk about Sherman as if he was the devil who might appear around the corner at any moment. I mean, and some people around here still talk about Sherman that way. Like they talk like he personally violated my grandmother in the sanctuary of the church. No, he didn't. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, they believe it. Uh, yeah, right. We we put up a marker in 18 or excuse me, in 2014 in Savannah for the 150th anniversary of the March to the Sea. And we put one up in Atlanta where the march began and we put one up in Savannah. I say we, Georgia Historical Society, and we helped them with the funding and the wording. Uh, so when I say we, I don't just mean me and my particular group, but uh, Georgia Historical Society put it up. And at the uh, ceremony to dedicate the marker, I was a participant, as was Todd Gross, who's president of the Georgia Historical Society, as were several other uh, local dignitaries, including Vince Dooley. If you've heard of Vince Dooley, the Georgia coach that recently passed away, um, he was on the board of the Georgia Historical Society, and so he was there. But in the after the ceremony, a woman accosted Todd, the president of Georgia Historical Society, and said, "We remember when Sherman came through." Well. She looked awfully good for 157 years old. I mean, I, she only knows what someone else had told her. 
Right. Uh, and I'm sure it passed down through the family uh, that, you know, the people were left starving. Well, sure. The whole point of the March to the Sea was to convince all the Georgia, well, one of them was to convince the Confederate government, as well as all the soldiers from Georgia that were serving in Virginia, you can't sustain this war. We're going to render the South incapable of supplying you. Uh, and the desertion rate among Georgians went sky high after the march to the sea, which was part of what Sherman envisioned. Still, they talk, uh, Sherman is not a fan favorite down here, as you can well imagine. But um, I, <laughs> one of my rebuttals, which I often bite my tongue and don't give, is, you know, well, you know, Sherman waged a total war. I, and I often want to say, well, then you shouldn't have started it. <laughs> uh, having been in the military for as long as I am, sometimes I begin to think that it's kind of nuts to have any rules by which to fight a war. Right. Because when you're in the war, the only, not the only objective, but the number one objective is win the blankety blank war. Mm -hmm. It's almost like when you have a cold. The one thing you want to do is get rid of the cold. A lot of other things can be going on in your life. The car might not start. You might not. To, you might need to go to the grocery store. You know, who knows what else? You got a bad review at your job, but getting rid of that cold is the thing that needs to be done. Right. And the same thing with fighting a war. The first thing to do is win the darn war, and that's what Sherman did. I had a I had a college professor. Uh, Dr. Kearns and at the University of Akron, he's a great professor, and, and he told me, told us the story that he went down to Georgia uh, for his brother's wedding, and him and his father were touring a battlefield, and the lady was super nice, it was like the southern charm you'd imagine, and uh, you know, all that, and she said, well, where are you guys from, and they said, Ohio, and then he said instantly, her demeanor changed. Demeanor, yeah. yeah. And she's like, Sherman was from Ohio. <laughs> and the rest of the trip, uh, she wasn't very nice to them, taking them through the battlefield. So that's that's also why I ask. Um, I know that Sherman's definitely not popular down there. Um, well, but, but another anecdote that I think is telling is you, there are many towns in Georgia that still have pre-war houses in them or pre-war buildings. And if you go the like one of the local historical societies might say, yeah, Sherman burned the whole town to the ground. Would you like to take our antebellum house tour? <laughs> okay, reconcile those two things for me. You know, <laughs> uh, and when that that was part of what drew some ire when we put up those markers. We said basically Sherman burned anything that might be useful to the Confederate military. Mm -hmm. Now, was there individual pillaging? Oh, you bet there was. Uh, should he have perhaps done a better job of controlling the forces he had? Because uh, some of them, if you remember the in Gone with the Wind, the bummer that came to, you know, Tara, um, he was obviously not under the control of any other officer because there was no other people around. And so was there some of that? Yeah, sure. Was there individual theft? Yes. Very, very few cases of rape. And yet, they all talk like every Yankee violated every Southern woman he saw. Mm. We have almost no evidence of that, except for a very few specific cases. Uh, was If you had a house with a corn crib, they were going to take the corn or burn the corn. That's for sure. If you stayed home, your house tended not to get ransacked. If you abandoned your house, then you might come back not to find any spoons left 
uh, or no, certainly no horses, no pigs, no chickens. Yeah, you were going to lose all that, and that was going to make your life very hard. Mm-hmm. But the number of houses that were actually burned, and one of the things uh, that was done is we examined the fire insurance maps from 1870, compared them to the ones from 1860, and a lot of them still showed the same residences that were there in 1860. So, yes, did they burn some houses? But that was not the point. The point was to destroy railroads, destroy depots, to destroy supplies, to destroy locomotives, to destroy uh, railroad cars, uh, to take pigs, chickens, horses, cows. Yeah, get rid of all that stuff that the Confederacy might use for meat or transportation or manufacturing, anything like that. Mm-hmm. But if you were an individual family and you stayed home, they tended not to burn your house. I say tended. Very few instances where the houses were ransacked and burned. Right. But you're, you were going to lose your corn. You were going to lose your ham. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So you guys work with these local battlefield preservation groups and historical societies. Uh, what's some of the land that you guys have saved? Maybe some of the, the bigger pieces and projects you guys have worked on? Well, the one of the first ones we did was Griswoldville, which almost nobody will have heard of. It was about the only infantry fight during the March to the Sea. Uh, if you think about the March to the Sea, Sherman encountered very little resistance outside of Wheeler's cavalry and some local militia. But in one case, the Georgia militia advanced from Macon hoping to uh, strike at least part of Sherman's forces. They were woefully inadequate to the task. It was a lousy day. A cold raining was falling. But it wound up being the only infantry fight during the March to the Sea. So, and we saved uh, several acres at Griswoldville. Uh, And as is typical for us, if we can, we turned that over to the state government. Now it's a state park. Uh, Resaca, we saved a bunch of acres in conjunction with the locals and in conjunction with American Battlefield Trust. Um, How many acres total? I think we have 470 acres under easement, conservation easement, if you're familiar with what conservation easement means. Um, And then we actually purchased 51 acres. The state bought, I think, 505 acres. So that's a pretty substantial investment there. We have helped buy a lot of, I'd say a lot of parcels several parcels around Chickamauga. As I mentioned earlier, it was typical when the federal government bought land to save as a battlefield, they did not buy everything. They bought what they thought was the most important part or the most important part that they could determine. Mm. Uh, And there was several around Reed's Bridge, specifically at Chickamauga, and we felt considerably there. where some oh uh, in Cobb County uh, it took about a month for U.S. forces to get across Cobb County. We've helped save land at Brushy Mountain, Lost Mountain. Uh, we're working on one at Pine Mountain. Uh, we saved parts of the River Line, as it's called. Um, let's see. I I got out on purpose so because I knew I couldn't do this normally. Where's one of my ones that has all the, oh, here it is. has all the side system on. That's it. Oh, uh, Crow Valley, north of Dalton, uh, for the opening of the Atlanta campaign. 
we outright bought 20 some acres there and turned it over to the Save the Dalton Battlefields, which is a local group. We own land at New Hope Church. Um, we've helped save land at Dallas. Uh, as I mentioned, Cobb County, part of the Mud Creek line, part of the Kennesaw Mountain line, uh, Cobb's Farm, uh, some land. We have not saved land at Peachtree Creek, but we stopped some development there. And for us, that's a save if you can talk a developer out of building 54 houses or Right. Um, uh, let's see, Utoy Creek, and uh, as I mentioned, the Riverline, and then Griswoldville. So that's that's not everything, but that's kind of the big stuff. And so you guys help stop development, you help purchase this land, and then when you get it, do you turn it over um, to someone else? Do you guys hold on to it? How does that work? Uh, we don't like to hold on to land because then we have to, I don't want to say become responsible for it, but we have to, we don't tend to live where these places are. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's another reason for having local groups there. They can tell us if somebody has dumped, you know, roofing shingles or an auto transmission or paint cans on a site uh, and we'll go help clean it up. But we can't, I don't drive by Grizzleville every day. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I wouldn't know if somebody, and we have found, I don't know what year it was, but we found the bulk of a, I think a 1950s era Chevrolet dumped uh, out at our property at New Hope Church. Wow. So that's another reason why we'd rather have a local government park uh, established and have local government or local group responsible for it uh, because we can't, uh, they, they drive past it on their way to work. They will know if something happened. Mm -hmm. We won't. Uh, sometimes they will tell us, hey, can you help us? And I remember helping to lift <laughs> the frame of a 1950 Chevrolet out of the <laughs> New Hope Church benefit, along with tires, oh, roofing shingles, um, car parts, uh, unbelievable stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's our our, our fervent hope as a model for preservation is we help preserve it and then somebody else helps sustain it, uh, whether it's a local historical group, a county government, a state government, or a national government. As I mentioned, Griswoldville, that's now, now part of the state park system. Uh, Chickamauga, uh, American Battlefield Trust will hopefully, and a lot of people may not be aware, the only way you can expand the national park is by congressional authorization. Um, there's no provision for an individual park, even if someone else buys the land for them and offers to give it to them, they can't accept it until Congress authorizes that. Mm -hmm. And that can be a long, slow process. We had the Wallace House out here in Cobb County was the headquarters for General Howard. And it was also a field hospital and it was also a signal station. And it belongs as part of the Kennesaw Mountain battlefield fight. But it's not adjoined to the existing Kennesaw Mountain National Park and National Battlefield Park boundaries. And so it took 14 years before Congress finally authorized the money to incorporate that into the Kennesaw Mountain National Battlefield Park holdings. And now, of course, they have to have the money to tear down the modern house that's there 
and or to rehabilitate it to the state in which it looks like it did in 1864, uh, and to remove trash and undergrowth and trees that were not there in 1864. So that's the kind of thing we're I, we're not capable of taking on that responsibility. We need an agency that's in the preservation business uh, and it's local to do that for us. We will quite avowedly help preserve it, but to maintain it, that's basically beyond our capability. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there's a lot of cost that goes into this. Is it primarily fundraising? Is that how you guys raise your funds for this? We raise funds by there's a membership fee. I, I have one guy tell me, you must be pretty smug with your cushy job as president of Georgia Battlefields. None of the trustees take a penny. We don't, <laughs> there's, no, there's no overhead as far as personal salary goes for us. Uh -huh. um, and it's, it's nice that we have people that are willing to be trustees at their own expense, essentially. Um, and we also raise money by conducting an annual tour. And for 20 years, Ed Bars, if you know who Ed Bars is, many of your audience might, was basically the premier tour guide in the nation, a premier battlefield tour guide, not only for Civil War, but Indian Wars, uh, Revolutionary War, War of 1812. He even did uh, World War II tours in Europe and the Pacific. Uh, he had been chief historian of the National Park Service. And once he retired from that job, he spent 200 to 250 days a year just doing nothing but conducting tours. And he would be reimbursed for his airline expenses and his hotel, but he never took a penny for the tour guide service that he provided. Mm. Uh, so, and we, he did that for us for 20 years. And unfortunately, I say, unfortunately, Ed died. He was 97, I think. So the time was obviously near the, mm -hmm. but uh, so we raised money from people buying seats on the bus to go for a tour with Ed Barnes. Um, so that and the uh, membership fees are principal, our principal to fundraising vehicles. Yeah. Well, do you guys have uh, continued to, to hold these um, tours without him? Yes. And I, I mean, as Ed got older, even though he was. Ed used to sit at the front of the bus, logically enough, as the tour guide. And when the door opened, Ed would be 100 yards away before everybody got off the bus. <laughs> I mean, he was one, you know, <laughs> spry individual even up into his 90s uh, but uh, we all die and pretty obviously once Ed got into his 90s we said what's our succession plan and uh, Jim Ogden is the historian at Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park and for several years he has kind of co-led the tour or he co-led the tours with Ed and uh, we are transitioning this will be the first year uh, the gym will be the sole guide. Um, and we transitioned for a couple of years where he, as I say, he led, co-led with Ed. And then I did a few on my own, uh, normally not by design. I led a few with Jim as well. Uh, but Jim will be the principal tour guide. So uh, Jim's not nearly as old as I am. We hope he'll be able to function in that role for many years. 
Interestingly, too, is Chickamauga and Chattanooga is a national military park. It, when it was established in 1890, part of the rationale for Congress spending the money on it was they thought if we have another war, we'll use them as a training ground. And for the Spanish-American War, there was a large camp established right on the battlefield, which we would hopefully never do today, to train soldiers for the Spanish-American War. Camp Colt was right in the middle of Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. And that was where Dwight Eisenhower did training in 1915. And that's why when he retired, he went back and bought a house and lived at Gettysburg because he became familiar with the battlefield during a, and when he was trained on the battlefield grounds, when it was turned to an army training camp for World War I. Wow. So now we don't have national military parks for those purposes anymore. And I'm pretty sure they would never put an army camp in the middle of Pickett's Charge these days. But the transition from national military parks to national battlefield parks, which is what Kennesaw Mountain is, for example, or Wilson's Creek, or Pea Ridge, mm -hmm. or Chancellorsville. Um, so you don't, after the 1890s spurt, where they, they justified the cost of preserving the land by designating them as national military parks, meaning they could subsequently be used as training grounds. They haven't done that again since World War I. So mm -hmm. thankfully, I mean, can you imagine what an armored division would have done <laughs> Or two to a place like Gettysburg. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that's crazy to think about. I, I didn't know that. Uh, is there a way that listeners can support you guys and, and the work that you're doing? Sure. Uh, we have a website, georgiabattlefields.org. I mean, you're welcome to donate, but uh, the membership started at $25, which isn't much, but we know not everybody you know thinks of $25 as not much. But in return for that, you get the newsletter, uh, which we put out monthly. And on, we have all the past newsletters on the website. You can see an example of the kind of uh, stuff we put out. Also on the website, we have a list of uh, preservation initiatives we've undertaken. Um, uh, in, in information about the tours that are coming up. We also list other uh, organizations with which we've worked, almost all of which are similar to ours in intent perhaps not in scope um, and certainly in different locations. Um, I served for seven years on the Tennessee Civil War Preservation Association Advisory Board because uh, Marianne Peckham, who for many years was the executive director, unfortunately now deceased, uh, I got to know her back in 1996. And when she retired from the Park Service and uh, we had stayed in touch, she wanted to have a representative on her advisory board from every state that was con uh, conjoined to Tennessee. So that would mean Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia. And to some degree, she succeeded. I was the Georgia rep for many years. But um, so we have links to organizations such as the Tennessee Civil War Preservation Association, plus other organizations within the state of Georgia. Uh, these local battlefield groups are some of them. And then we also have links to uh, organizations that have similar intent, even if we haven't worked together, like Atlanta History Center, um, American Battlefield Trust, those kind of things. So the website's a good way to decide if you want to donate or become a member. Yeah, well, I'll make sure to put that in the uh, 
episode notes so that anyone can click on it and uh, right. hopefully donate, become a member, uh, come on out and see one of the tours. Uh, well, well, thank you for your time. It's been, it's been a good discussion. Is, I, uh, I used up the whole hour on you already. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way that listeners can contact you if they have questions or? Well, the, the website um, has, a, as most websites do, has a one tab that says contact and you can fill that out, but it's just, it's info, I-N-F-O at georgiabattlefields.org. That, those emails go to me along with a couple of other folks. Uh, and that's, I could, I respond to almost every one, although unfortunately since it's on the web, it also gets screen grabbed by spam bots. So I uh, weed out a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, right, right. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a good discussion about uh, the work that you guys are doing. Uh, I encourage listeners to support you guys. Um, it's very important work. Uh, we, we talked, uh, I talked a few, I guess it was quite a while ago now, maybe back in July with Tom Van Winkle of the Central Virginia's Battlefield Trust about the work they're doing. And um, I, I applaud you guys truly um, for keeping the history alive. Very- I would call them a very analogous organization, although they focus on a smaller part of their state. Mm-hmm. And there's the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation, which, of course, does the Shenandoah Valley. But Virginia deserves, I think, to have multiple organizations because they have they had so many things occur in Virginia. Mm-hmm. I mean, Georgia had its share. But if you look at the states that actually conjoin northern states like Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, there's an awful lot of engagements in those states. And I say engagements because a lot of them don't rise to the criterion of being a battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it just, I mean, Missouri has an awful lot of engagements, but outside of Wilson's Creek, probably nobody thinks about Missouri as being a hotbed of Civil War activity. Well, but that's where Jesse James and Frank James and William Quantrill and Jim Lane and all those people came from was the guerrilla warfare in Missouri. Right. Yeah, there's these small sites that get overlooked and and it's definitely important we preserve them. Um, It it makes the history much different uh, for any listeners. I encourage you guys to go out and visit. Uh, You mentioned Fredericksburg too. I'll give a a little shout out. On December 8th through the 12th, I believe, they're gonna be having the uh, Fredericksburg reenactment. Uh, so if anyone wants to go out there and see that, that's going to be taking place as well. Um, well, again, thank you for your time. It's been a great discussion. Sure. Well, uh, you know, you have contact info now. So if somebody wants, uh, to the extent anybody likes advice from an old person, but in this case, an old and somewhat experienced person, about, <laughs> you know, perhaps how to preserve a site or hints or other people to contact to help you preserve a site. Uh, we're always glad to do that, too. Yeah, that's a fantastic resource for anyone out there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. I hope you'll join us next week. And as always, please head to thecivilwarcenter.com to learn more. And you can find us on Patreon in the link below. Please consider donating to help this podcast continue. Have a great week.